Okay, so without further ado, to represent the theist side of the debate, does God exist? I'd like to invite Dr. William Craig. Thank you, and good evening. It's great to be here tonight. I want to begin by thanking the ACC for the invitation to participate in tonight's debate. And it's my sincere hope that our discussion this evening will be a very practical help to you as you think about this most important topic. Now, in preparing for tonight's debate, I took the time to explore Dr. Shook's very interesting website. And I discovered that he's an ardent naturalist. Now, you ask, what is naturalism? Well, here's his definition. Naturalism is the view that the only reality, the only reality, is the physical reality of energy and matter as gradually discovered by experience, reason, and science. Dr. Shook believes that there is nothing beyond the physical world. By contrast, I believe that as we probe the natural world, we encounter, as it were, signposts of transcendence pointing beyond the natural world to its ground in a supernatural reality. So tonight's debate is really a debate between naturalism and supernaturalism. Accordingly, I'm going to defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. First, that there are no good reasons to think that naturalism is true. And second, that there are good reasons to think that supernaturalism is true. Now, I'll leave it up to Dr. Shook to present the arguments for naturalism before I respond to them in my next speech. But I simply want to note in passing that on his website, he gives only one argument for naturalism. And to my surprise, that argument was logically invalid. Uh, that is to say, even if you grant all of its premises, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. And so I'll be anxious to see if he presents that one tonight. Turn then uh, to that second contention. What good reasons are there to think that supernaturalism is true? Well, tonight I'm going to sketch five arguments which constitute a cumulative case for the existence of a reality beyond the universe, which is plausibly called God. Number one, the origin of the universe points to the existence of a transcendent creator. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why everything exists? Typically, naturalists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of events in the past history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. But that entails that the number of past events must therefore be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. 
This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 13 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event called the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the Big Bang. As the physicist Paul Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Now, of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning. But none of these theories has commended itself to the scientific community as more plausible than the Big Bang Theory. In fact, in 2003, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe, which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion, cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. Vilenkin pulls no punches. He writes, it is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning." End quote. That problem was nicely captured by Anthony Kenny of Oxford University. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. For such a conclusion is, in the words of philosopher of science Bernhard Kanitscheider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. And we can summarize our argument thus far as follows. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Because this cause must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description either abstract objects like numbers or else an intelligent mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. It therefore follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent personal mind. And thus we're brought not merely to a supernatural cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number two, 
The fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life points to a designer of the cosmos. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that our universe appears to be fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. For example, if the force of gravity or the atomic weak force had been altered by as little as one part out of 10 to the 100th power, the universe would not have been life-permitting. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning. Physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because the constants and quantities in question are independent of the laws of nature. In fact, string theory predicts that there are around 10 to the 500th power different possible universes compatible with nature's laws. So, could the fine-tuning be due to chance? Well, the problem with this alternative is that the probability that all the constants and quantities would fall by chance alone into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are incomprehensibly more probable than any sort of life-permitting universe. So if the universe were the product of chance, the odds are overwhelming that the universe would be life-prohibiting. In order to rescue the alternative of chance, naturalists have therefore been forced to adopt the extraordinary hypothesis that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing a sort of world ensemble or multiverse in which our universe is but a part. Somewhere in this infinite world ensemble, finely tuned universes will appear by chance alone, and we happen to be one such world. There are, however, at least two major failings with the world ensemble hypothesis. First, there's no evidence that a world ensemble exists. There's no evidence that there even are other worlds, much less that they are randomly ordered and infinite. Second, if our universe is just a random member of a world ensemble, then it's overwhelmingly more probable that we should be observing a much smaller universe. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has calculated that it is inconceivably more probable that our solar system should form suddenly by the random collision of particles than that a finely tuned universe should exist. Uh, Penrose calls it utter chicken feed by comparison. So, if our universe is just a member randomly of the world ensemble, it is inconceivably more probable that we should be observing a universe no larger than our solar system. Observable universes like that are simply far more plenteous in the world ensemble than worlds like ours, and therefore ought to be observed by us. Since we do not have such observations, that fact strongly disconfirms the world ensemble hypothesis. On naturalism, then, at least, it is highly probable that there is no world ensemble. And thus, the last ring of defense for the alternative of chance collapses. So, we may argue as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. 
Two, the fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity or to chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Thus, the fine-tuning of the universe points to the existence of a supernatural designer of the universe. Number three, objective moral values are plausibly grounded in God. The Achilles heel of naturalism is that it has no grounds for normative action. Nothing is forbidden. Everything is permitted. Dr. Shook recognizes this. On his website, he espouses what he calls naturalistic moral relativism. On this view, moral values are relative to each individual person or to a society or to the human race or whatever. As Dr. Shook says, there really are no absolute moral truths. On this view, morality is just a set of recommendations for achieving certain goals, whatever they may be. He compares it to agriculture. Agriculture, he says, consists of recommendations for growing crops. For example, if you want to grow corn, then you should use fertilizer. But no one is under any obligation to grow corn or anything else. And it's the same with morality. The problem is this is massively contrary to moral experience. On the relativistic view, the psychopath who considers it a good thing to rape and kill little children does nothing wrong. For relative to his personal goals and desires, this is what he should do. A society like Nazi Germany cannot be condemned for sending millions of Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals to the gas chambers for, according to their value system, this was good. Anyone with a sound moral sense knows that this cannot be right. Experience is supposed to be one of the arbiters of truth for the naturalist. But in moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral values. Dr. Shook admits, and I quote, nothing in the natural world, such as human beings, human societies, human life on earth, can be responsible for absolute moral truths. It follows that they must be grounded in a supernatural reality. So we may argue as follows. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus imply God's existence. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracles and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did really rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one. 
On the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the study of the resurrection narratives, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gerald Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death, in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by skeptics, unbelievers, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent New Testament scholar, concludes, That is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. And thus, we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God based on the resurrection of Jesus. One, there are three established facts about Jesus, his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. Two, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of these facts. Three, the hypothesis God raised Jesus from the dead entails that the God revealed by Jesus exists. And four, therefore, the God revealed by Jesus exists. Finally, number five, you can experience God personally. You can know God exists simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. The naturalist recognizes experience to be one of the avenues to truth. But we can come to know God through experience. We mustn't so concentrate on the arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. In conclusion, then, we've seen five reasons to think that God exists. If Dr. Shook wants us to believe naturalism instead, then he must first tear down all five of the reasons that I presented and then in their place erect a case of his own to show that the only reality is physical reality. Unless and until he does that, 
I think that supernaturalism is the more plausible worldview. Thank you, Dr. Craig. I would now like to invite Dr. John Shook up for a 20-minute uh, opening remark. Well, thank you very much. This is my first visit to Vancouver. It's a lovely city. My hosts have been wonderful. Let me extend my thanks to the organizers of this debate and for my hosts for taking such good care of me. I've enjoyed many terrific conversations with them while here. Let me also extend my thanks to Dr. Craig for agreeing to participate in this important debate. Let me also mention that my organization, the Center for Inquiry, has a representative here who is operating a booth outside where there's information available about a UBC and also a Simon Fraser Freethinkers group that is being organized and there's information outside. It's only natural for a religious person to be curious about atheism. I'd like to speak directly to religious people first for a little while. If you happen to believe in the existence of a God, then there is a difference between you and I. But this is really a small difference. Over the centuries and millennia, most people have been believing in thousands of gods. You don't believe in almost any of those gods, and I don't believe in any of them. I just believe in one less God than you do, and that's really a small difference. <laughs> When a theist and an atheist come together to discuss the reasons for and against religious beliefs, they demonstrate their shared commitment to human intelligence. People who are committed to reason are proud to publicly share their humble efforts to understand reality and humanity's place in the world. This university, like every institution of higher learning, represents civilization's faith in the power of the human mind. All people who make up this university and every university, and people who come to speak at university events, display this respect for the human mind and show respect for the cooperative efforts of sincere people who pursue the truth together. This debate exemplifies this respect that the mind deserves. We are proud of this institution, and we are proud of you for being here to participate in this life of the mind. All right. An atheist, who is an atheist? Dr. Craig gave us portions of his definition of what a theist is. Uh, he may have more to say on that score. I'm going to try to explain what an atheist is. An atheist is simply a person who demands good reasons for all beliefs and doesn't find the reasons given for any religion to be convincing. An atheist is therefore someone who lives without belief in a god. Atheists are happy to take responsibility for their lives. They wish they lived in a world where more people took that same responsibility. Atheists imagine a world to come in which people respectfully debate the reasons for and against belief in all these gods that are available. Today we live at a midway point between a time when only blind faith and priestly authority controlled religion and a future time when any remaining religious belief has been thoroughly examined and tested by reason and science. I do not yet know what sort of religious belief, if any, may survive that scrutiny. The process is hardly completed. This atheist keeps watch on the process and remains unconvinced by any religions offered so far. 
What does the atheist believe in, if not religion? The atheist is unable to accept supernaturalism, and therefore the atheist is a naturalist. Naturalism, as Dr. Craig mentioned, can be briefly defined as the belief that the only reality is the physical universe of energy and matter as gradually discovered by our intelligence using the tools of experience, reason, and science working together. Many people are naturalists because they are impressed with science's ability to produce reliable knowledge and by deciding that the supernatural cannot be reasonably supported by experience, reason, or science. On the other hand, many supernaturalists remain comfortable with the supernatural because they've decided that naturalism, uh, using experience, reason, and science, cannot prove supernaturalism false. Some supernaturalists additionally believe that scientific knowledge as well can be used to positively support belief in the supernatural. Theological defenses of supernaturalism sometimes appeal to reliable human knowledge about the natural world, and they try to formulate hypotheses about the supernatural that are harmoniously consistent with science's best theorizing about the natural world. Let me be clear about this point. In order to be a supernaturalist, it is hardly necessary to reject the existence of the natural world or to reject science's knowledge of it. In a sense, most religious people are naturalists, too. They do believe in the existence of the natural world. They accept the evidence of common sense about the world, and they accept most or perhaps all of science's knowledge about the world. So what really divides the naturalist from the supernaturalist is the additional question of whether one should believe in the supernatural over and above the natural. To proceed from the natural world to the supernatural world, metaphorical bridges of theological reasoning, such as we've heard some already from Dr. Craig, must be constructed and successfully crossed. The supernaturalist has the obligation to provide strong bridges the naturalist, in response, argues that all of these bridges fail to be reasonably strong enough. The varieties of supernatural bridges fall into various categories. We've heard some tonight. But to defend naturalism and to reject supernaturalism, the naturalist has to explain why all of these bridges fail, because their arguments are too weak to support the passage to naturalism. Often the supernaturalist will construct many, many, many bridges, attempting to build up a good case for supernaturalism with numerous arguments. Now, if one of these bridges, just one, were reasonably strong enough, the supernaturalist would take the advantage over the naturalist, and then people ought to believe in both the natural and supernatural worlds. Since naturalists are skeptical that any of these bridges are strong enough, they conclude that there's no reasonable way to get to naturalism. The large number of weak theological bridges does not impress any naturalist. Okay? If you want to safely cross a deep mountain chasm, having a dozen flimsy bridges available to you should not be, uh, make you more confident of your chances of getting safely across to the other side. Now, Dr. Craig has described several arguments trying to bridge this chasm to supernaturalism. I'm going to proceed to make some skeptical observations about these bridges in a more sort of general way. We will additionally have uh, a debate and rebuttal time to get into the heart of the details of many of these arguments. So you'll forgive me in my opening statement if I remain at a more general level trying to give you an impression of what it's like to be an atheist and a naturalist, and we'll get down to uh, 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 hard details soon enough. Now, 
An atheist is a naturalist who is skeptical about supernaturalism. Atheism does not rest on proving that supernaturalism is false. This is key. Defenders of religion who construct hypotheses about God sometimes announce that these hypotheses cannot be proven false, so therefore they must be true. No. Theologians who design their God so carefully that no actual evidence could ever disapprove it sometimes think their job is done. They seem to be saying, since you can't prove my God doesn't exist, you must admit my God does exist. Such theologians are making three basic logical errors. First, things can't exist just because we can't prove otherwise. An atheist is reasonable because no argument for supernaturalism is strong enough. The burden of proof about God is entirely on the theologian's shoulders. Second, hypotheses do not become more reasonable by adapting to fit all possible evidence. Science does not work that way, despite common misconceptions. Scientific hypotheses earn belief by correctly predicting future new evidence. A hypothesis that can survive any and all evidence makes evidence irrelevant. And so that hypothesis gains no support from any evidence. Third, lots of theologians can design their gods to be evidence proof. If dozens or hundreds of different supernaturalisms are all claiming to be true in this way, can the atheist be blamed for refusing to accept any of them? In a weird sort of way, if all of them can claim to be true, none of them can be true. Now, when atheists are confronted by these sorts of overconfident theologians and their evidence-proof hypotheses about gods, atheists wonder what happened to good old-fashioned traditional theology. Where did the natural theology of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries go? 19th century theology confronted evolution and lost. Maybe 20th century theology lost its nerve, too, and largely gave up on competing with science for explaining what is going on within the natural universe. Some 20th century theologians went to the extreme position that the most genuine faith is the one that endures despite being completely rationally absurd. Now, atheism can't reason or debate with that sort of irrationalism. Other 20th century theologians were chased out of nature, but they clung to the edges of the universe, claiming that only supernaturalism can account for the most general features of the universe and for the existence of the very uh, for the existence of the universe at all. Now, this kind of what I call theology at the edge at least offers arguments for God that can be rationally debated. And we've heard a couple tonight. However, such theology still makes no empirically testable predictions, but is simply happy to proceed from whatever science has established so far about nature. Theology at the edge can always keep its marginal place, no matter how far science advances, so long as it always adapts to stay compatible with all scientific knowledge. With the theologies at the edge permanently entrenched in the mysterious darkness beyond science's light, atheism will always have competition and naturalism will always seem incomplete. Does the atheist deny that dark mysteries will always lurk beyond the known universe? Of course not. The atheist simply refuses to believe any speculative supernatural hypotheses, especially when they refuse to positively contribute to knowledge of how nature itself works. Some of Dr. Craig's arguments for God are good examples of how to do theology at the edge. Since theology at the edge is quite happy to admit that nature surely exists and that science can gain much knowledge about nature, the atheist tonight will not have to waste time establishing these facts. Of course, now, there are some religions that view nature as only illusion and science as completely delusional, but we won't have to debate whether naturalism is delusional here tonight in this context. 
The question again is whether we should also accept supernaturalism in addition to believing in the existence of nature. The atheist position is that we should not. The darkness that surrounds our current knowledge is, for the atheist, just more unknown nature to be explored. That's the atheist's alternative conservative hypothesis. Can the atheist now prove that beyond the known natural world lies only more nature? No such proof is possible. Naturalism at the edge is more reasonable, not because it can be proven true or because supernaturalism can be proven false, but rather because we already placed some confidence in science's expanding knowledge, while little confidence can be placed in theology's shrinking retreat. Now just consider the heavy price that must be paid by a theology at the edge. What sort of God must this theologian like Dr. Craig design in order to survive at the fringes and margins of knowledge? Dr. Craig's God, for example, must exist in a timeless, eternal, unchanging state before creating the universe. According to Dr. Craig's argument that nature must have a definite beginning, nothing real could be infinitely long in duration. For Dr. Craig's God then to be real apart from the natural universe, God cannot exist in time before the natural universe exists. No time, therefore no change. And so Dr. Craig's God could not, for example, make any plans, think through ideas, or do anything while in this eternal state. Now, Dr. Craig complains that we cannot conceive of an infinite series of events. Now, Dr. Craig decides this because he says infinities, infinities contain contradictions. Now, mathematicians, in fact, actually define what infinite sets are in terms of such contradictions. No implications about reality follow from this at all, and mathematicians should not be consulted about reality. Okay. Now, now, Dr. Craig complains that we cannot conceive of an infinite series of events, right? Now, now perhaps, I'm, I'm trying to be a humble guy here, perhaps such an infinite is indeed beyond human imagination. But just because something's beyond current human imagination has no bearing on reality either. Reality's doing whatever it's doing, regardless of whether or not we're able to conceive of it. We need to take a different tactic here. For example, is God's eternality any easier for our imaginations? Who really holds the advantage in this debate here? And Dr. Craig also tells us that this eternal, unchanging, perfect God is a person. I see no analogy, however, between living people who have to think through their actions and suffer through their experiences and a frozen, crystalline God who needs the natural universe in order to make a decision or change his mind or to learn what suffering is like. But all this is a problem for Dr. Craig to explain to ordinary Christians, not to this atheist, I don't care, I don't have a dog in this fight. I am only pointing out the extremes to which a theologian must go. Now, here's another example. Dr. Craig likes debating naturalists who hold that all space, time, energy, and matter originated in the Big Bang. Dr. Craig wants us to apply the principle of sufficient reason, as it's traditionally called, demanding explanations for each and everything in order so that he can show that we need to hypothesize a supernatural explanation for nature. Now, it's inconvenient, therefore, for Dr. Craig to encounter other naturalists who do respect reason's demand for sufficient explanation. Now, when theology says, for example, that God's the one thing that needs no further explanation, naturalists wonder how nature itself got ruled out. What if nature is the last necessary thing? 
Now, many cosmologists are designing, for example, natural explanations for the Big Bang, postulating more universe beyond the known visible universe, or even more universes, as Dr. Craig uh, mentioned, multiverses and and, uh, perhaps an infinite number. Now, Dr. Craig complains that no such uh, hypotheses about multiple universes has been proven. We all realize that. Now, the atheist respects reason and admires adventurous scientists who push into the dark frontiers of nature, constantly expanding our conception of reality. Now, not so long ago, people believed that the Earth was at the center of a small starry sphere. Then our solar system became just a grain of sand in a vast galaxy. Then our galaxy just became one lost among a trillion more. Can we still be surprised that science might next cast our visible universe into a possibly infinite array of other universes? All we need as naturalists is to offer one speculative hypothesis to stand against the supernaturalist hypothesis. Neither of us can prove these to be true. Neither of us can prove them to be false. But in a stalemate debate like that, the atheist wins because the more reasonable position is the conservative position. Stick with what you know. All right, now let me continue. I agree. Our planet is special indeed. It appears designed for us, and evolution explains why. The universe, however does not appear to be especially designed for life. The modern-day theologian of the edges doesn't really carry the way anymore. If the naturalist points out that all sorts of other kinds of life could exist in universes where the laws of nature were different, the theologian says, no, no, our God wanted just this universe exactly, just what's best for us. And so this God is made, made immune from all evidence. If the naturalist goes the other way to complain about all of the obvious natural imperfections and natural evils of this harsh, hostile universe, the theologian then can twist around and say, no, no, our God wanted just this universe exactly, even if it doesn't seem best for us. And again, God is evidence proof. Theology at the edges needs to keep God in the dark and deep in mystery. The atheist doesn't want to live in the dark, finding it more reasonable to live in the light. Now I'm going to proceed very quickly in three minutes to give a brief outline of responses to Dr. Craig's arguments about morality, the biblical authority, and revelation. They're going to go by real fast, but I already told you at the beginning, in these opening statements, we're not going to be able to get in the nuts and bolts of what the other guy just said. There's going to be rebuttal time following, so stay tuned. This is going to go fast. Dr. Craig describes these objective moral values and truths as truths entirely independent from humans, right? They are what they are, completely independent of what any or all of us think, humanity collectively. However, when he defines it that way, he begs the question. He defines morality in a way that already transcends us and appears to win the argument without any effort at all. Fallacy. We need to redefine some terms here. Let's mean by objective simply the opposite of subjective or dependent on just what you or me. Now, I agree in one sense that there are objective moral truths. I don't believe that there are any absolute moral truths. Dr. Craig was correct in quoting me accurately from my website, but you need to understand the distinction between objectivity and absolute. Okay? Objective truths can still be true in a sense that is relative to humanity, but not to subjective personal whims. Take, for example, science. Science yields objective truths, but they're the result of our effort, and they may be revisable in the future. We should trust science's knowledge, even knowing that we humbly have to admit it might be corrected in the future by us humans. Absolute moral truths, on the other hand, completely transcend humanity. 
Now, uh, I don't believe that any single religion can be trusted to tell us what these moral truths are. He mentions a few. I don't have any objection to them. I believe in them. Okay? So in my rebuttal, stay tuned for what more I have to say about the relationship between religion and morality. I claim that there are objective moral truths in the sense that we can all agree on them and ought to agree on them. They're not subjective, but they're not absolute either in the sense that Dr. Craig needs them to be to make his point. All right. A couple real quick words about his appeal to the Bible and to mysticism. Dr. Craig talks about the Bible as being an authority. What we need is other sources outside of the Bible. Dr. Craig doesn't cite any. He talks about personal experience. Well, Christians experience Jesus. Hindus experience Krishna. Uh, these things are culturally relative and have no bearing on what reality is ultimately like. Thank you for listening to my opening statement. Thank you, Dr. Shook. Uh, one thing that we did forget at the beginning, if anyone has any cell phone which might still be making noise, please turn it off. I, I'm very happy that it didn't come up in the 40 minutes we've had already, so I hope it doesn't uh, in the future. Uh, the other thing, very good table thumping technique. Enthusiasm could be a bit better. Okay. Um, so now we have a 12-minute each rebuttal period so they can, the debaters can directly address the points that were made on the opposite side of the debate. So here's where we will hopefully see the debate start to heat up a little bit. And to begin that, I'd like to invite Dr. Craig back to the table. You'll remember that I said in my first speech I was going to defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. The first one is that there's no good reason to think that naturalism is true. Now, it was striking as we listened to Dr. Shook in his opening speech that he presented no argument that naturalism is true. Remember, naturalism is the view that physical reality is all there is, that there is nothing beyond the physical world. And in fact, Dr. Shook can't present any argument to prove that. Indeed, he actually admits it. Uh, for example, on his website, he says it is impossible to prove by experience, reason or science that nothing supernatural exists. But that is what naturalism affirms, that nothing supernatural exists. Physical reality is all there is, and yet he admits you can't prove it by reason, science, and experience. This is just to admit that naturalism cannot be proved true. It can only be accepted by faith. But the problem is, you see, naturalism forbids taking anything by faith. He says, again on the website, if naturalism needs outside assistance with fully understanding its own foundations, then naturalism is evidently incomplete and false. So in order to be a naturalist, you have to deny the foundations of naturalism, namely reason, science, and experience are the only sources of authority, because otherwise you can't believe that the natural world is all there is. Now, in his opening speech, Dr. Shook said, but an atheist isn't someone who denies that God exists. He's just someone without belief in God. I'm afraid that's not the traditional definition of what an atheist is. The Encyclopedia of Philosophy, a standard reference work, says, according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. 
And that's what the naturalist maintains. Uh, to say an atheist is simply someone who lacks a belief in God is to confuse atheism with agnosticism. An agnostic doesn't have a belief in God, but he doesn't deny God exists. Or with those who think that the question of God's existence is just a meaningless question. So naturalism is committed to the view that the physical world is all there is. Atheism is committed to the world that there, to the view that there is no supernatural and that there is no God. The difficulty, as you see, is that you can't prove that simply by showing that arguments for God don't work. Kai Nielsen is a prominent Canadian philosopher from Calgary University. This is what he says. He's an atheist. He says, to show that an argument is invalid or unsound is not to show that the conclusion of the argument is false. All of the proofs of God's existence may fail, but it may still be the case that God exists. In short, to show that the proofs do not work is not enough by itself. It may still be the case that there is a God. So Dr. Shook has got to do more than just destroy those bridges he claims I'm trying to build across the chasm. He's got to show that there's nothing on the other side to get to, that there is nothing beyond the physical world. Trouble is, he can't do it. He admits that reason, science, and experience can't establish naturalism, and therefore naturalism is fundamentally incoherent. When it comes to establishing its own foundations, it requires outside assistance, which means, in his own words, that it is incomplete and therefore false. So we've seen no good reason tonight to think that naturalism is true. It's, it's a huge lacuna in tonight's debate. Now, what about the arguments that I gave to show that supernaturalism is true? Number one, I suggested that the origin of the universe points beyond nature to a transcendent cause of the universe. The fact is that nature had a beginning in the finite past and came into existence. And since something can't come out of nothing, there must be a transcendent cause. Now here Dr. Shook uh, responds to my philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe by saying that we shouldn't take our, our, or consult mathematicians about what exists. Now that surprised me when he said that because that's my point, that's what I'm saying, is that if something is mathematically possible, that doesn't mean it can really exist. And indeed, with respect to the infinite, you can show that self-contradictions arise if you try to subtract infinity from infinity. If you have an infinite number of baseball cards, you can give every odd-numbered card away. And you're going to wind up, as I say, with self-contradictions when you take infinity from infinity. So that's, that's my point, is that uh, mathematics is not a guide to reality. Uh, indeed, there are uh, things that might be possible to do mathematically, but they're not meaningful or possible physically. So I don't think he's been able to deal with the logical contradictions that would result if an infinite number of things could actually exist. What about the evidence for the beginning of the universe from contemporary cosmology? Here he says, well, uh, maybe a multiverse will avoid the beginning. Uh, again, I've already refuted that in my opening speech. The borg guth vilenkin theorem developed in 2003 shows that any universe, including an inflationary multiverse, cannot be extended infinitely into the past. You reach a past space-time boundary in a finite amount of time about 13.7 billion years ago. So we have both good philosophical arguments, that's reason. We have scientific evidence, that's science. Two of the arbiters of truth proposed by the naturalist that both point to a beginning of the universe and therefore to a transcendent cause. Now, Dr. Shook says, but God would be a timeless person, and that's just 
inconceivable. How is that any better than an infinite past? Well, an infinite past isn't just unimaginable. It leads to logical contradictions, as I said. But I don't see any logical incoherence in the idea of a timeless person. A timeless person would simply be a changeless, self-conscious being who exists outside of our four-dimensional space-time continuum. That is the traditional concept of God, all the way going back to Aristotle. This is nothing new. This isn't, uh, what did he call it, theology at the edge. This is the traditional classical concept of God, that God is the creator of time and space and exists outside of time and space. So I don't think he's been able to refute either of those two premises that whatever begins to exist has a cause. We have good grounds for thinking the universe began to exist, and it follows deductively from that that therefore the universe has a cause. Now, what about my second argument for the fine-tuning of the universe uh, and not being due to physical necessity or to chance and therefore due to design? Here, I saw no refutation other than some vague reference to natural imperfections in the universe. But notice my argument here isn't appealing to biological evolution. My argument is not denying that. It's fully compatible with the typical Darwinian story. I'm going back to the initial conditions of the universe, which in recent years have been discovered to be fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that is simply incomprehensible. And you've got to explain this by either saying it's physically necessary, but that contradicts everything that physics is telling us about these constants and quantities, or else you've got to say that it resulted from chance alone. And I looked at the attempt to defend chance by the multiverse hypothesis and gave two arguments against it. So I think that argument still stands. What about objective moral values? I said that if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. But in moral experience, and again, experience is one of the arbiters of truth for the naturalist, we apprehend a realm of objective moral values from which it follows that God exists. Now, here Dr. Schuch says he believes that there are objective values, but not absolute values. But notice how he defends objective, defines objective. Objective is something that we can all agree on. Well, I don't think that on the naturalist view there are even objective values in that sense. The psychopath doesn't agree that uh, it's wrong to torture and rape little children. The Nazi National Socialists didn't think it was wrong to send Jews and gypsies to the, to the gas chambers. The apartheid supporting Afrikaner in South Africa didn't think there was anything wrong with racial discrimination. You see, these moral principles on Dr. Shook's naturalism are objective only in the sense that the recommendations for agriculture are objective. It is objectively true that if you want to grow corn, then you should use fertilizer. That, that's an objective Principle. Similarly, if you want to, if you're a psychopath and you want to have the greatest pleasurable experience, then you ought to torture and rape your victims. It's objective in that sense. You see, he says that moral values are just practical prescriptions of recommended actions for achieving a certain goal. And those goals are relative to each individual to various societies, whether Nazi Germany society, apartheid South Africa, killing fields in Cambodia, communist uh, Soviet Russia, they're, they're relative, or relative to the human race. It, it doesn't matter. All of these are equally value, valid. So it seems to me that it's very clear that on Dr. Schuch's view, there are not objective values in the sense that these are valid and binding apart from human opinion. 
except in the sense that these are these practical recommendations. If you want to do this, then you should do that. And that, as I say, is massively, massively contrary to moral experience. So if you agree with me that it is better to love a little child and nurture him rather than to torture and rape that little child, if you think there is a moral difference between those two, then you should agree with me that God exists. On the naturalist's view, there is no way to found a realm of objective moral values because in nature, whatever is, is right. We are just a relatively advanced primate species and have no more intrinsic value than a species of bonobo or, uh, or apes. What about the resurrection of Jesus? I pointed out that today historians agree on the fact of the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, the origin of the disciples' belief. These are historical facts, again, what the naturalist would appeal to. And therefore, they need some explanation. How do you explain these? I can't think of any better explanation than the explanation the disciples gave, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Dr. Shook responds by saying, well, you're taking the Bible as your authority. No, I am not. I am treating the Bible as an ordinary collection of historical documents comparable to Thucydides or Herodotus or other ancient works and uh, investigating them historically. And these are the facts that historians have determined as a result. So I'm not appealing to the authority or inspiration of the Bible here, but treating them as ordinary historical documents. Finally, what about immediate experience of God? He says, well, experiences are relative that people have experiences of Krishna. Right. And I would say that a person has a right to believe in what he experiences unless he has some sort of a defeater for that experience, unless there's some reason to think that he is deluded or uh, incorrect, he has a right to go on the basis of that experience. And experience is one of the means of truth that the naturalist believes in. So why does he deny religious experience? Why exclude that as part of the rich human tapestry of experience? It seems to me that in the absence of any defeater, any argument for atheism, and we've not heard one tonight, I'm perfectly rational, perfectly within my rights, to continue to believe on the basis of my experience that God exists. Thank you, Dr. Craig. I would now like to invite Dr. Shook to make another 12-minute rebuttal. Well, now you see how the guy who gets to go second really falls behind fast. So I got a lot of catching up to do. But let's start with some preliminary complaints about Dr. Craig's claims that I haven't proven squat. Let's find out. Now, I say again that a sufficiently evidence-proof supernaturalism, a supernaturalism that is compatible with any and all anything that science goes to the trouble of bothering to find out is a useless supernaturalism. Yeah, it can't be proven false. How does this help the supernaturalist? I can't prove Santa Claus doesn't exist either. Maybe Santa Claus has a hidden secret invisible castle up at North Pole. Theologians are very intelligent people with powerful imaginations. For every supernaturalist hypothesis on offer from this Christian, there are hundreds more. What's an atheist to do? Somehow, they can't all be true. When the atheist shrugs his shoulders and refuses to believe any of them, who looks more rational? Now, Dr. Craig wasn't paying attention to my argument for naturalism, so I will go to the trouble of 
repeating it. My argument for naturalism is precisely two claims. Sound familiar? Follow me. Number one, nature exists. Number two, no supernaturalist hypothesis, no bridge is reasonable. And furthermore, by the way, if you don't have a bridge to the other side, if you have no idea how to cross it, you have no reason to think there's something else waiting for you at the end. You're going in the irrational chasm. When Dr. Craig claims, well, I must be right because he can't prove me false, you see we have this sort of schoolyard juvenile logic operating here, and I think we're adults. Now, let's get back to the concrete details of the arguments. An atheist... To repeat, by my definition, does not believe in any God, anything supernatural, and lives without religion. Some of the things that I've said, for example, you cannot prove a sufficiently transcendent evidence-proof supernaturalist hypothesis false, sounds more like agnosticism. I cannot waste time here getting into the terminological debates. Is atheism kind of like agnosticism or really different? Atheists and agnostics can't agree with each other. I pitied poor Dr. Craig to try to figure that out as well. So let's drop it. Let's stick with my definitions because this is my time. Now, <laughs> Craig goes on to talk about how... Uh, you know, this business of the multiverse is, uh, you know, silly and, and uh, hasn't been proven. I told you it hasn't been proven. This is cutting-edge stuff. It's kind of weird that Dr. Craig would appeal to one current scientific cosmological theory. Uh, you know, that's a profound respect by a, a Christian theologian for, for some contemporary scientific theory, a shining example, actually. I wish we're more respected. But it leads him into trouble because now the naturalist grasps that any current scientific theory is just that. It's bound to get modified or entirely replaced, possibly within our lifetimes, if not sooner. The idea of the multiverse is being explored, and there are more hypotheses waiting. There's a lot of darkness out there to be explored by science. When the supernaturalist says, well, this scientist says that, and this scientist says that, the naturalist says, so what? The pantheon of scientists that have been completely wrong would fill this room. Okay? All scientists only partially grasp at reality. This is humility on the part of the naturalist. It's not an admission that naturalism is false. If Dr. Craig doesn't think nature exists, I'd like to hear one positive argument for that. All right? The problem is we're at the very edges of speculative knowledge. All right. Now, I have to say a little bit about the fine-tuning argument before finishing up my promised explanation of what I have to say about morality, the Bible, and mystical experience. Now, it is true that if certain fundamental properties of our universe were slightly different, then the type of organic, earthly-like life that we presently understand would not be possible. However, for all we know, other kinds of life could flourish under quite different fundamental properties of nature. We are simply ignorant of the possibilities. Now, the theologian could counter-argue by saying that a supernatural being has an overriding aim to ensure the existence of forms of life just like us. Now, this refined supposition would need much additional argument to support it. We haven't heard any of that tonight. Perhaps we will. And such an argument eventually resorts to suspiciously theological or scriptural dogmas for premises. Since there's no obvious reason why a very intelligent and powerful God would even bother creating life, perhaps life is an accidental byproduct of the creation of what this God really wants, like lots of sand or something. I don't know. <laughs> Alternatively... Uh, you know, uh, 
you you could try to say, well, God is so good. Okay, that that really puts human beings again at the center of the universe. I, I you know I like human beings. Uh, you know I'm fond of them. I'm I'm actually one of them myself. So, uh, but I also think that a Christian, a, a religious believer, should have profound respect for all the rest of creation as well. And perhaps humanity needs to be humbled. Our planet needs us to do this. It could also be pointed out, Dr. Craig's a theist, he believes in one supreme being. He's actually given no argument that there is only one supreme being operating here. Many other sorts of kinds of gods could equally be hypothesized as responsible for creating the universe or controlling the existence of life in our universe, such as a committee of powerful but uncaring gods that enjoy experimenting with life, or a god that's actually partially evil, for all we know. Furthermore, this universe is actually quite inhospitable to life as we know it, since locations favoring organic life seem to be quite rare. We tenuously cling to existence on the surface of an unpredictable planet lost among countless solar systems where Earth-like planets might be scarce. Perhaps there is a good bit of other kinds of life available out there. Don't know. Uh, it's too soon to be talking about probabilities and saying that the naturalist has a low probability here. We are simply too ignorant to make these sorts of arguments. Now, let me proceed to morality. I told you. No single religion can be trusted to tell us what they are, these special objective or perhaps moral truths. The special authority of one lone God has never been much help. The Bible alone appears to endorse a wide variety of moral rules, most of which Christians don't follow anyway. Even if small sections of the Bible are isolated, such as certain sayings of Jesus, they are so highly idealistic and vaguely general that Christians ever since have had a hard time agreeing on what they specifically require. Over the past two millennia, Christians have disagreed over war, slavery, capital punishment, the rights of women, the justice of capitalism, what form of government God would approve. Ironically, the little specific agreement the Christians have reached by now has been reached by consultations among theologians and democratic voting in ecclesiastical conventions and assemblies. Now, reliance on democratic methods is especially ironic here, since the Bible nowhere approves of mass democracy, a fact that has kept kings and aristocracies in power for many centuries. Despite this obstacle, Christians who were tired of tyranny and religious warfare put their faith in democracy and the rule of law. No longer would the legitimacy of law ultimately reside on any king. In democracies everywhere, people are committed to the objective truth of basic laws protecting rights and liberties. We don't need kings because we each have each other to sustain objective law and pass it on with needed adjustments to the next generations. Now, according to Dr. Craig's argument, if its reasoning was valid, democracy would never work unless all citizens recognized a supremely kingly lawgiver. But his reasoning is valid no longer. And just as objective law has been liberated, so has objective morality. Atheists are perfectly capable of respecting objective morality. We are no less capable of being moral neighbors as we are capable of being. Uh, we are no less capable of being moral neighbors as we are of being law-abiding neighbors. Yes, the full responsibility of sustaining morality is now entirely on our shoulders, but that makes it no less objective. It, it's not absolute, mind you. It's still dependent on the collective wisdom of humanity, but it is still objective. Atheists like democratic citizens everywhere are ready to be treated as adults, not as immature simpletons who need a great father on a kingly throne. Civilized adults respect and obey morality and law for its own sake, not because it was commanded by a paternalistic authority. 
Atheists are not interested in throwing away objective morality and law. No reasonable atheist would turn away from the collective wisdom of an old civilization. Moral and legal rules that if advanced human welfare and liberation should be kept and where possible, improved. However, supernatural authorities who demand obedience are no longer part of humanity's collective wisdom any more than kingly tyrants are. All around the world, people have been putting their trust in more and more democracies. Religions have shattered in thousands of sects and denominations and churches, all disagreeing about every facet of culture and morality and law. But above this chaos, the atheist detects a slow trend towards greater respect for the equal dignity and human rights of all humanity. This atheist is a humanist about morality, proud to commit to humanist moral and legal ideals, and happy to join forces with religious humanists. All right. I'm going to move on because I'm running out of time. I have to say a little bit again about the Bible. Dr. Craig has made sweeping false statements about history. He says, historians say, scholars say. Now, look, I understand he teaches at a school that's primarily revolving around Christian theology. I understand he teaches at a school that, uh, you know, requires uh, belief in the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Perhaps Dr. Craig also personally, privately agrees. I don't know. He may tell us. But if he continues to say scholars say this and historians say that, he's leading you down a primrose path in universities around the world, historians in history departments for over a century now, have applied severe criteria to what's going to count as legitimate, objective testimony. Referring to one part of the Bible to support another part of the Bible, to support a third part of the Bible, to support a fourth part of the Bible, you're going in logical circles. Dr. Craig nowhere has given any examples of non-Christian sources, contemporary or just after Jesus' life and death, that corroborate any of this. Do I have an explanation for the empty tomb? Natural explanation? I can think of several dozen. I don't claim any of them are true. For example, any historian knows if this truly was a Roman execution, which the Bible itself asserts, there wouldn't have been a tomb in the first place. The Romans would have thrown them out to be eaten by wolves or buried in a common grave. Think about this. Christians didn't know where this tomb allegedly was. Historians tell us Christians didn't have a place to go and venerate the tomb until people started making a few locations up four centuries after Jesus' death. If it was so easy to know where this tomb was, according to Dr. Craig, Christians would have been there uh, laying roses or whatever Christians would have been doing back there. Didn't happen. I have very little time left. Dr. Craig is impressed by his personal experience People do have mystical religious experiences by themselves. They prove nothing. They have to be supported by far more than just profound emotional disturbances. There are naturalistic explanations for all of them. He doesn't want to thank Krishna or Nirvana or any of these other gods really exist because those people have those experiences. But he's uh, hypocritical, not applying the same natural explanations to his own Christian experiences. Thank you, Dr. Shrek. That's your time. Naturalism is correct? Yes, that you cannot prove that there is no reality beyond the ah, material world. Two separate questions here that have to be distinguished and carefully answered. I'll do it exceedingly briefing. Um, uh, nature exists. Um, if there's an argument against that, uh, I haven't heard it. 
To argue that naturalism, therefore, is correct simply uh, requires the additional view that none of the positive arguments for supernaturalism work. To declare that supernaturalism cannot be proven false is in itself not a positive argument for supernaturalism. Now, Dr. Shug, from those two premises that nature exists and that there is no bridge to a supernatural reality, do you really think that it follows that nature is all there is? Uh, that is the most reasonable conclusion well, remaining so far. By what so logical far. rule of inference does that follow? It seems to me that from those two premises, all that follows is we don't know if there is something beyond nature. Hmm. Let me try an analogy. Suppose uh, to, to see how my reasoning process works, let me try an analogy. Suppose you have a large sum of money you wish to invest, and I'm a broker, and I'm telling you the stock market's going up and up and up and up and up, and you say to me, well, now, look, I'm pretty happy with my bank uh, checking account. My money's really safe. Uh, give me several positive good reasons for investing it in the stock market. And I proceed to give you one after another really weak in your judgment argument. And after you get past the third or fourth one, you stop me and you say, no, I'm not going to additionally try to put my money in the stock market. I don't want my money there. You haven't given me enough good reasons. The naturalist is somebody who retains belief in nature. This illustrates my point. That person has not given you reasons to believe the stock market is going up. But that doesn't allow you anyway logically to conclude that, therefore, the stock market isn't going to go up or that it's going to go down. You, you simply have to withhold right. judgment. You see, I, it seems to me your, uh, your, your reasoning here is, is logically invalid. Uh, no, it's not logically invalid. It's simply conservative. I'm very conservative with my money. Uh, well, well, let's let's talk. Uh, let, let me again try to explain very briefly without taking up your valuable time. Uh, look, uh, suppose your stockbroker said, well, why are you so hesitant to invest money in the stock market? After all, you can't prove that the stock market won't go up. Should you say, well, come a day, I'm getting rich. I can't prove <laughs> the stock market well, isn't going up. I'm going to get rich. Come on, Dr. Shook. That's, uh, Dr. that's Shuck. unwise. Let, Dr. Shook, please. Think. Let look. Let's be serious. The point is, the, the, the point is. I, I assure from, you, I'm serious. From about the money. lack of evidence that the market will go up, it does not follow that therefore the market will not go up. I just but it doesn't to that, follow yes. that it's going to go down. You, I, I agree and with yet, that naturalism entirely. is the view that there is nothing beyond the physical world on your definition. And you admit you cannot prove that by reason, no, science, no, and experience. You're, you're manipulating words. A naturalist is convinced that nature exists. Okay? So am I. You're asking the naturalist to additionally believe in the existence of the supernatural. And the naturalist is simply saying, give me some good enough positive arguments. That's not now, the definition of naturalism you the... give. Your, na- your definition of naturalism is that there's nothing beyond the physical world, that there's nothing in addition to matter and energy. There are no supernatural realities. And the absence of evidence for those leaves you at best with agnosticism, not with naturalism. Naturalism oh. cannot establish its oh, own it's... worldview. Quite right. It's unfortunate that we're back to debating terminology instead of reality. Uh, Look, um, this business of agnosticism is a bit odd. Suppose I were to say the reason why I uh, don't 
believe in the supernatural is because, uh, you know, I have not enough good reasons to believe in it. Now, does this make me an agnostic or an atheist? In a weird sort of way, I'm both. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive terms. An agnostic is somebody who cannot prove that supernaturalism is false. But again, that in and of itself is not a positive reason to go ahead and jump into the But has anybody offered in tonight's debate the claim that because you can't show supernaturalism to be false, therefore you should believe in supernaturalism? Who has argued that tonight? Well, (laughs) nobody. I've, I've given five when, positive when arguments for supernaturalism, tonight, and we've not heard uh, any positive arguments for naturalism. All you have said is that my arguments fail, but that doesn't serve to establish that, that the material world is the only reality there is. There could be something beyond it. There could be something beyond it, and I've already all told right. you it might be more nature. <laughs> for all you know that, or anybody knows, I don't need if the it, supernatural. If it's more nature, it's not beyond it, Right. That's a self-contradiction, uh, friends. Those who say that there may be more nature beyond it, it's still nature. That's, that doesn't, uh, doesn't say there is something beyond nature. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the argument from the origin of the universe. Um, I, I don't see that you have a whole lot here except to say that theories get modified and you attack science, uh, the scientists, because they, they may be wrong and so forth. Stephen Hawking, in The Nature of Space and Time, says this. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Do you think Stephen Hawking is misinformed or exaggerating? I'm not a scientist, and I'm not qualified to speak to the success or failure The community of scientists in the future, perhaps young Mm -hmm. people in this audience, will decide whether or not Stephen Hawking was 100% right or only partially right. So you think odds are he's probably only partially right, and uh, it's odd for a theologian to place 100% confidence in the current scientific theory. Now you're committed as a naturalist to following the evidence where it leads, right? Okay. Yes. So would you deny that the scientific evidence today uh, suggests that the universe did have an absolute beginning? It depends on what you mean by an absolute beginning. I mean example, that there was a point in time before which nothing existed. Fine. If there, nothing existed before it, then there's no room for a supernaturalist hypothesis either, and the supernaturalist loses. Wouldn't that, that points, be the case uh, if just one... simply follows. You, you, okay, students, you've got to listen here now. Wouldn't that be the case? Wouldn't that be the case only if the theist thought that God existed before the Big Bang? Uh, I understand on your view that this business of before gets really exceedingly tricky. Well, uh, it's just that the theist ne- doesn't think that God exists in time, and therefore he doesn't think he exists before the Big Bang. So it's perfectly coherent to say that the scientific evidence indicates the universe had a beginning, and as Hawking says, time and space came into being at that point, and that God is a transcendent reality beyond time well, and I space. I understand your speculative hypothesis. You've made it compatible with all available evidence. Congratulations, I'm not impressed. In order. All right. All right, thanks, debaters. Now, eight minutes for Dr. Shook to ask questions of Dr. Craig.
Okay, um, we've done a fair bit of wrangling over who has the burden of proof. I think we may be tiring of that. I am. Uh, we may also have reached an impasse on this business of proving this and proving that. Um, perhaps in fairness, we should spend some more time, if you're willing, Dr. Craig, to, to focus on the morality business and Good. the uh, Bible and, and experience for those in the audience who may be more curious about those issues. Um, let me start then with morality. Uh, these objective moral values you contrast very strongly with subjective moral values, and it does look like you've set up a very neat dichotomy, of course, between objective and subjective. Um, this atheist is a humanist and denies that uh, the most important moral values that we should treasure and respect are subjective. And so then this atheist describes them as objective, right, in the sense that they represent the collective judgment of most, hopefully all of humanity, perhaps someday. Um, you would like to make the counter argument, if, if I understand you correctly, and I'd like you to, to correct me if I'm mistaken, that even the view that humanity has reached some solid conclusions about some very important moral values still can leave plenty of room for an atheist to view these moral values as still subjective. And, and you would accuse such an atheist then of, you know, being apt to rape somebody at a moment's notice. No, I, no, I didn't uh, say that, so Dr. What, Shuck. Could you we clarify fair, the, I never said an atheist was why exactly, to do this. Right. Uh, why, uh, if not objective, right, why, why is my category of objective insufficient, I guess, would be the question. Because I can't see on your view of moral relativism, which says that moral values are relative to the individual or to human societies, I can't see how you can condemn the psychopath as doing anything morally wrong. Or I, I can't see how you can say that Nazi Germany, National Socialist Germany, did anything wrong. What they did was in accord with their ethical system in that society. And on naturalism, there is no transcendent anchor point that stands above individuals and societies to serve as a, an absolute plumb line. So these are just relative, and there's, there's no basis for saying that this individual is wrong and this one is right. I understand. So uh, this business of objectivity where I describe it as not just this society or that person, but this business of sort of the collective wisdom of all of humanity that we want to preserve and pass on to the rest of humanity still isn't good enough for you. I claim uh, that it's going to have to be good enough because religion really has no way of knowing what these allegedly absolute truths are. So my next question would be, mm -hmm. uh, speaking from your perspective as a Christian theologian, could you explain why certain moral values that your religion advances today have been occasionally denied or changed, modified? Take war, take, uh, you know, capital punishment, take abortion, take divorce. If it's so easy for religion to find these objective moral truths when the atheist is somehow lost in the dark, uh, why is there so much dissent even within one's own denomination these days? Why all the, why all the fighting? It's critical that we distinguish with respect to this argument between 
an epistemological argument and an ontological foundation for moral values. My argument is not that we need religion in order to tell us what is right and wrong, how to distinguish good from evil. I have never claimed that we need the guidance of religion for an epistemological purpose. In fact, quite the contrary, I believe as a Christian that God's moral law is written on our hearts so that we have a kind of instinctive grasp of the difference between right and wrong, and hence there are largely universal moral codes. My argument is one about the ontological foundations of morality. If morality is just a sociobiological byproduct of the evolutionary process, then it seems to me that it is simply ephemeral and, and non-objective. And so we need to have some kind of a transcendent plumb line or anchor point to ground objective values. And then the epistemological question is quite apart from that. So I'm very prepared to say that, yes, absolutely, people's uh, views on what is right and wrong or moral values change. I think that moral progress is genuinely possible, that we can come to discern the good and the, the right more clearly. But on the naturalistic view, there is no such thing as moral progress. There's only moral change. But you cannot say that one is better approximating the good because there is no absolute standard to which one is approximating. Uh, let's, I promise to talk about the Bible and about Revelation. I'll, I'll fulfill that promise. Um, one question that I would like to ask uh, I raised it earlier, and, and I don't think you've um, taken the opportunity to reply yet. Uh, what non-Christian, non-Bible-based sources, contemporary with Jesus's life or death or soon thereafter, have any capacity to corroborate whatsoever claims made in the Bible by Christians already committed to their theological views? Can you cite any anything? I can. Uh and these are reviewed, for example, in a book like The Evidence for Jesus by Richard France or a recent book by Paul Eddy and uh, Greg Boyd called The Jesus Legend, where they go through the references to Jesus of Nazareth in Roman, uh, Jewish, and extra-biblical Christian sources. But the more fundamental point here, Dr. Shook, that needs to be understood is that the presupposition that the Documents that were eventually collected into the New Testament need outside corroboration in order to serve as useful historical sources is itself a prejudice against those sources. And what modern historians working with these documents have discovered is that there is very, very good reason to trust these biblical narratives as historical sources. So that it's, it's not a matter of looking to outside corroboration. It will be using tests like multiple attestation, embarrassment, dissimilarity, and other criteria of authenticity by which scholars judge these narratives to be credibly historical or not. So the, the whole approach you've suggested is, is prejudicial and assumes that these documents have no historical value unless and until they're corroborated by outside sources. And that's simply a mistaken presupposition. Nevertheless, it is the presupposition of academic historians who aren't already 
pre-committed to proving Christianity no, at whatever that, that's cost. Not at all true. Uh, let no. me make one last point. By your standards, your standards of historical credulity, Islamic scholars of the Quran therefore must be believed when they claim that an angel visited Muhammad and delivered the Quran. For you see, Islamic scholars of the Quran all agree. Oh, they all agree. You see, by your standards, the atheist now must accept not your religion, but a hundred. No, that, that's, that's not at all the case what historians are doing when they investigate these documents. I'll give you 30 seconds to answer. Oh, when you investigate the Quran using these same sorts of criteria for historicity and authenticity, I think you can show that the Quran incorporates demonstrably legendary accounts into it, that it's got historical uh, inaccuracies and so forth. And in fact, the evidence for the historical Jesus is far better than the evidence for the historical Muhammad uh, in terms of the sources and the nearness of those sources to the date of the person living. So I would be quite prepared to do an even-handed, historically objective comparison of the Quran and the New Testament as historical sources. Thank you, Dr. Craig. Well, now we've done it. We dragged in Muhammad and Santa Claus. Uh, uh, look, about the Santa Claus, I don't believe in Santa Claus. Uh, what I said was any sufficiently sophisticated, imaginative Santa Claus theologian could hypothesize some super duper Santa Claus that would be completely evidence proof. All right. Now, if that's the case, if we're dealing with such a committed believer in this super-duper Santa Claus who cannot be proven to not exist, what are we to do with a fanatic? Stop listening. Sorry. Now, this business of a special universe, uh, let me work this with an analogy. Uh, you know, it wasn't so long ago, you know, when we were pretty much the only planet we knew about, the other things called planets were just points of light named after gods. And then with scientific advances, we discovered that there were other planets. Now, ours was still special. Nowadays, planets have been discovered orbiting around other suns, hundreds of planets. We've discovered the immense variety of planets. Some of these planets may prove to be similar to Earth as the galaxy is explored, right? We have a, a plethora of vast diversity of Earths, uh, of, of planets, sorry, only one of which is our special little Earth, many of others which may be similar enough but still quite different. In the old days, a theologian could say, now look, uh, one special Earth planet, that's all we know about, what are the odds there must be a God? Well, no theologian argues that way anymore, starting from the premise of the existence of planets it's kind of absurd anymore, right? What we simply need is a hypothesis that there's a very large number of widely varying types of planets out there, some of which are capable of supporting life like us. Others may be capable of supporting other forms of life based on chemistry that we don't even know about or forms of energy we don't even know about. Gone are the days when a theologian could argue about this one special fine-tuned planet. The same thing's gonna happen about the universe. We are in a special universe. It does support us, okay? We understand this. If our universe, if the, our little visible corner of, of this universe 
is fine-tuned for us, it demands explanation. The same thing is going to happen in all likelihood, perhaps within your lifetimes, about universes. Scientists already know right now that there must be far more universe after the Big Bang than is currently visible. Our little visible corner of the universe with our laws that we know about must in fact be an infinitesimal portion of the much larger invisible universe that resulted from the Big Bang. It's invisible to us because it expanded in opposite far directions so fast, according to the inflationary models mentioned earlier, that light from those portions of the universe can never reach us. It will always be dark. So the universe is already much bigger, according to current scientific hypothesis. Do not be surprised when scientists start talking about our universe having a lifetime, other universes outside it having a lifetime. Don't bet against science. Uh, this is a message that the naturalists uh, takes to heart. Dr. Craig calls it faith, but when you turn on the switch and the lights go on, is it faith or just good old practical reliable knowledge? I claim the latter. Now, Dr. Craig tells us you don't need God to know moral truths. Another example of theology at the edge. Most ordinary Christians, I think, would be surprised to learn of this. They proselytize and evangelize saying you need God, you need to believe in the special authority of God's message in order to know moral truths. Seems kind of weird to me, but again, that's an argument Dr. Craig's going to have to have with ordinary lay people, Christians. I'm not in that fight. But if Dr. Craig thinks that there is no way to have God to authorize how we can know these allegedly existing moral truths, and we've already heard Dr. Craig say there's no other way to know the objective moral truths, because somehow naturalism is inadequate. We are lost indeed. What has happened to the Christian theological proud claim that Christianity was the path to knowing righteousness and morality? It's dissipated, and I'm shocked. All right. To follow up, the burden of proof is on the supernaturalists to prove these extraordinary claims. If Dr. Craig, if Christians already believe in the existence of nature and the power of science to gradually spread the light of knowledge into that nature, there's no disagreement between us. The disagreement is what to do about the darkness at the edges. If you want to live in that darkness, so be it. Just don't complain when the atheist prefers to stay in the light. Thank you very much and good evening. So for the first question, let's go to this lineup for Dr. Craig. Uh, hey, Dr. Craig. Um, I want to say that I, I hope God is a humanist. Um, whatever he says, it's moral, um, either because he says it by him saying it makes it moral, or it's moral because it has an effect on, on our reality. It has some sort of effect on our reality. Now, if it has an effect on our reality, then we can see it. We can feel it. It is part of our existence. And so if it has effect on reality, and we can see it, and we can sense it, we can sense it then why can't we be the authority on morality instead of God. Why can't we be the ones? The only difference is that we want it instead of God wanting it. Well, I think the answer is because, simply, if God does not exist, then human beings are just a relatively advanced species of primate. And as such, they're not anything special in the universe. They're just a blind evolutionary product of animals, and animals aren't moral agents. So, Excuse me? Why is God special? Why is he the right? Well, by definition, God is the greatest conceivable being. If anything were greater than 
that, then that would be God. So by definition, God is the greatest conceivable being. And moral goodness is a great making property. So God, by definition, is morally perfect, morally good being. And so you have to get to some sort of ultimate absolute, and it seems to me that this would be God. And I think God is a humanist, as you would like to put it. God affirms the value of human beings who are persons, created persons in his image. But you see, if there is no God, then we're just primates. We're just animals. And there's... Find one thing I said here. I, I said it would be arbitrary him saying things. If it's just the fact that he said it that made it moral. I said that mm -hmm. it's moral because we can see it in reality. Yeah. So it's... Okay. I, I think that the argument here is the old euthyphro argument, which asks, uh, is it moral because God says so, or does God say so because it's moral? And I think that's a false dilemma. I think the correct answer is to say that it's moral because that's the way God is. God's commands, which constitute our moral duties, are based upon his moral nature, which is essentially kind, loving, generous, just, and so forth. And this is the middle way through this euthyphro dilemma. Okay, thank you. A question for Dr. Shook from that lineup. Oh, okay. Um, I'd just, just like to say that I feel a little bit misled by the topic of the debate. Um, I thought it was going to be a debate on whether God exists, not whether a Christian God exists. Um, and I also, my question for Dr. Shook is that... Um, <laughs> Okay, so I understand that your definition of a naturalist is someone who bases their beliefs on science and experience, and the third one was? Reason. Reason, right, okay. So, um, and you said that uh, basically, in a summary, being unable... Do you, do you have a question with this? Yes, I do. Okay, can being, you ask it? Being unable to disprove something is not reason enough to accept it as true. That was your argument against believing in God, right? Uh, the position I took was that the supernaturalist occasionally seems very impressed when they've been so imaginatively creative as to hypothesize a God, be it Christian or any other sort of God, that has become completely evidence proof. In other words, there's no nothing that we currently know through experience, reason or science that could possibly prove it to be false. Yes, and that leads to my uh, question, if, is that the basis of science is that being unable to disprove something is, is like the opposite of that. Like everyone here, assuming you're in university, took up to grade 10 science, where we learned that science is where being unable to disprove something is reason to accept it as true. The law of gravity, the reason to believe the law of gravity is because we cannot disprove gravity. I think everyone here learned that when we were in high school. Ah, I see the... I think I see the confusion here. Um, in order to establish gravity as the most plausible explanation, other uh, hypotheses have to be tested and therefore ruled out as wrong. And that has been very successfully done in favor of the theory that there's a mutually attractive force between any two objects with mass no other hypothesis that human beings have come up with and tested has been able to adequately explain experimental results. So what we have here is a case of one theory surviving experimental testing. 
Now, the analogy to religion was, would be as follows. If religion were in a mood to try to appeal to evidence in a similar way, the various supernaturalist hypotheses would have to uh, undertake the task of making predictions about new things that would be discovered within nature, and then scientists would go out and investigate whether or not those things could in fact be found, and the supernaturalist hypothesis that garnered the most correct experimental predictions while suffering no uh, falsifications would emerge, you see, as the winner. Theology can do this and used to do it in prior centuries, but scientific hypotheses postulating only natural forces, energy, mass, these sorts of things, have consistently proven to be far more persuasive and reasonable for things happening within nature. Evolution sort of was the last straw. Um, so what we have here is a case of reasoning and science demanding, first, are you willing to put your hypothesis under rigorous experimental testing? Modern day theology at the edges doesn't do this anymore. It simply takes whatever science manages to know about nature and then complain that there's still more mystery. We heard much of this tonight. So uh, theology, you know, the analogy between theology and science breaks down completely. I hope this helps clear up a little bit for you how reasoning and science and theology could or should work. Thank you. Okay, another question for Dr. Craig from this line. Oh, you're holding it. Okay. Um, my question also relates to the matter of objective morality, and I think that you said something that was very true, which was that in order for there to be objective morality, there has to be a standard, an objective standard, a plumb line, you called it, mm -hmm. for that objective morality. And what I don't understand is why can't human nature be that objective standard, the way that we actually are, what actually betters the human condition? Um, you said that programmed values are not, are not objective, but normally when we speak of the word objective in a scientific sense, I would say it is objectively true that you are sitting there. It doesn't matter whether I believe you're sitting there or not. It's true. This doesn't matter. Why can't that be our response to the psychopath who gets pleasure out of killing? Why can't we just say to the psychopath, I'm sorry, but you are wrong that killing is, is good? Well, that is what I want to say, but it's difficult for the naturalist to say that. Uh, in a sense, this should be a question for Dr. Shook, because it's he, as a naturalist, who says that it is impossible for you to ground absolute moral truths in human beings, human societies, or human life, because there's nothing special about human uh, beings or human life or society on a naturalistic worldview. So it, I guess the, 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 the answer to your question is because it's arbitrary. There's, it's, uh, there's simply no reason to invest homo sapiens and their herd morality that they've evolved in the evolutionary process with the kind of objectivity that you want to invest it in. I, I in fact, think that this is the humanistic residue of having been raised in Western Christian culture, which has affirmed the intrinsic value of human beings. And, and it's difficult for folks, once they've let go of God, to let go of the intrinsic value of human beings, which has been based upon belief in God. Uh, 
But it does seem to me that philosophers like Nietzsche and the existentialists and the naturalists like Dawkins and others are quite correct in seeing that once you've let go of God, then human beings are just some relatively advanced primates that have evolved on this speck of dust called planet Earth, lost in the cosmos, and there's simply no reason at all to think that their herd morality is special or objectively true. And a question for Dr. Shuck. Hello, Dr. Shuck. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, first of all, if there's a god, could be a she, could be a he, just throwing that out there. Um, <laughs> okay, so you said um, right at the very beginning, we're all atheists about thousands of God. You're just one more ahead of the believer. Um, what do you have to say to the argument that was not brought up in this debate that the presence of thousands of gods throughout history, throughout cultures, suggests that there is a God? Ah, fascinating. This is a variation on the um, argument from the consent of humanity, as John Stuart Mill might have put it, in the last century. In other words, the idea is as if you know, all of humanity or most of humanity agrees on X, who are we now to dispute it? Of course, um, one major difficulty with uh, just accepting anything that collective humanity currently says is that if that were our procedure, science would have never gotten off the ground and we'd still be living in caves. Human beings have collectively believed a wide variety of bizarre speculations about nature and how nature works. But science has undergone the very hard work. And scientists have consistently been in the minority of uh, human beings on this planet with their advanced new theories, and they suffer terribly for it. They suffer from persecutions in less enlightened countries still controlled by dogma and priestly authority. They suffer in our own, if we want to call it advanced civilization here nowadays because, you know, uh, common people complain it's very hard to understand sophisticated things like quantum mechanics and Big Bang cosmology. So the poor suffering scientists, you know. Um, but we do depend on science. And we can't always just accept what humanity uh, happens to agree at a particular point of time. That can put the naturalist in a very difficult position. You might anticipate me. Uh, you might say, well, now, didn't you just now, Dr. Shook, claim that we ought to be humanists because many great civilizations and many great world religions have been gradually evolving towards the view, as Dr. Craig so eloquently put it, that human beings all deserve, you know, dignity and intrinsic value. Well, the difference is, is that when humanity collectively has struggled so far and so long for beliefs that are of immense benefit and practical value to all of humanity, that's, if you will, the sort of pragmatic test, uh, we should have some confidence that we're on the right track. Does belief in the supernatural pass the same test? Do priestly authorities, dogmatic creeds, churches running governments, kings proclaiming divine authority still have practical value for the advancement of civilization? I think the fact that the 20th century has witnessed the march and progress of democracy says no, 
I don't think we're going back. So we must intelligently winnow out things about which humanity seems to be making progress and things about which humanity has simply been mistaken. Okay, I have a question from one of the other rooms for Dr. Craig. Um, it relates to a comment I believe that was said there before, which is that um, if there is a God, why is it the God that is revealed to us by the Bible? That was the burden of my fourth argument, where I turned to the evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think that the historical credibility of the New Testament records of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, of his radical claims to be the personal revelation of God, his miracles, and especially his resurrection from the dead, uh, cry out for some sort of explanation. And I think that the best explanation is the one that the original disciples gave, namely that he was who he claimed to be and that God raised him from the dead in attestation for those allegedly blasphemous claims for which he was crucified. And it's for that reason that uh, I not only believe in God, but I think that that God has revealed himself specially in Jesus of Nazareth. And a question from doc, for Dr. Shook, actually a combination of two questions which are very similar. Um, how do you, or, or how does the atheist in, in general, explain modern-day miracles such as, and this, these are the ones that are listed, um, the miracle of Fatima, um, blind eyes seeing, and deaf ears hearing? Well, I've heard of all of those three things. I cannot possibly claim any expertise on these sorts of phenomena. Down in Texas, I read in the papers over the past few weeks, dozens of eyewitnesses have testified to UFOs, including one of the local police authorities. Well, uh, what do we do with this? Now, naturalism uses a combination of experience, reason, and science to try to decide what is real. Experience alone, personal testimony, should not be trusted without corroboration, checking against what we know to be reasonably true and whether science can provide some alternative explanations. Scientists have been very busily providing naturalistic explanations for a wide variety of types of things, including personal hallucinations, personal insanities and delusions, malfunctioning of the brain, Even such things as mass hallucinations, crowd deliriums, sociological phenomenon, like all of a sudden uh, many people coming up with the same story nearly simultaneously. But scientists have been able to offer, uh, if not proven demonstrably, reasonable explanations on purely naturalistic grounds for these phenomena. But they're, of course, remains much work to be done. When you have cumulative uh, efforts on the part of scientists to be able to explain so many of these alleged mysteries, the naturalist gains confidence that new mysteries will eventually also be explained by solely naturalistic hypotheses. I would also point out that naturally enough, pun intended, religious believers love and admire mysteries and miracles that pertain to their own faith and are not particularly impressed 
by the claims of other religions, rival religions, that uh, make similar claims of special miracles that support their rival religious views. There's a clear asymmetry, a clear hypocrisy there. The naturalist stands alone in having the simplest, straightforward, and even-handed explanation of all of these alleged events. You don't need supernaturalism. Thank you. All right, let's take another question from this line. Hi. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the burden of proof, and I just wanted to point out, firstly, that you cannot prove the non-existence of a thing. And naturalists accept this. But the problem is, uh, when you invoke God as an explanation for that, what you're doing is you're invoking something that is inherently inexplicable. Thereby, you're not solving the problem, you're not explaining anything, you're confounding the problem. You have more to explain. And I just want to ask you, do you think that invoking God as a hypothesis about uh, natural things or the origin of life or the origin of the universe, I think that's an advancement to knowledge. Um, now, repeat the first part of the question again, because I, I disagreed with what you said there. It is impossible to oh, prove yeah, right. the non-existence. impossible to prove something does not exist. That's, that's silly. Of course you can prove something does not exist. Uh, we can prove, for example, that there are no living Tyrannosaurus Rex on the face of the earth. We can prove that there are no Muslims of the United States Senate. Uh, or, as Dr. Shook says, if you can show that something is a self-contradiction. Uh, he's in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, you can show that something is self-contradictory. So there are no married bachelors. So it's, it, this is an atheist line that you hear on a popular level all the time, but that sophisticated atheists don't take because it is easy to prove that things don't exist. By now, now the question is, if it is the case that you can't prove that God does not exist, then you shouldn't be a naturalist. You should be some sort of agnostic or something, but you shouldn't say th go around saying things like, nature is all there is. There is nothing beyond matter and energy. There is no supernatural reality, because those claims exceed what you yourself say you can prove. So you need to make more modest claims about your position that are, are more simply agnostic or something and find a new name rather than naturalism because that's that isn't something that you can sustain the burden of proof for now the last part of your question assumed that i was presenting god as some sort of an explanatory hypothesis and if you look at my arguments they're not like that these are deductive arguments now what that means is that if the premises are true that the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's explanatory or not, it doesn't matter. All that matters is, are the premises more plausibly true than not? Because if they are, then the conclusion is logically unavoidable. And so, yes, I think they definitely represent an increase in knowledge. This is an example of deductive logical reasoning. And it, it can't be impugned by saying that it's not... Uh, some sort of uh, explanatory inference to the best explanation or something of that sort.
Take it away. Similar question for Dr. Shuk about the burden of proof. Uh, much of your argument seems to, in, in your opening statement, seems to rest on the notion that naturalism, in the sense that the physical world is all there is, is a default position. You also stated that we should stick with what we know. The many worlds hypothesis is far from grounded in natural experience. Obviously, we do not experience other universes or reason. It is not necessary to believe in the existence of other universes or science because the science is currently controversial at best. So if we stick with what we know, which is that our universe exists, how can naturalism be justified as a default position? You've mistaken my argument and misstated it crucially. My initial premise is not nature is all that exists. My first premise is that nature exists. And if you doubt that, check your sanity. The, 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 uh, the, the, the conclusion is that nature is the only thing that can be reasonably believed in. So you need a second premise in there, and I've supplied it. Namely, all the arguments given by supernaturalists about her existence. Thank you very much, wherever you were. Uh, she, she thanks you as well. Uh, uh, all of these bridges to some unknowable darkness out there fail. So you have two premises and a conclusion. It is of the deductive form. Uh, we're clarifying forms now. Uh, the, the second point that you wanted to make was this business. If you could repeat it again so I get it accurately, you mentioned fine-tuning, and you wanted... Well, if we stick with what we know and that our universe exists, how can naturalism right. be justified as a default position? Well, I think I've, I've managed to answer it. Naturalism stands as not a default position, but as, if I, as I tried to mention earlier, the conservative position, if you follow the argument out to its conclusion, reasoning should be conservative, believe only those things for which you have adequate evidence and argument for, because the supernaturalist arguments, as I've argued, don't carry the weight then the conclusion is, the default position is, believe what you've already started out believing in, namely natural existence. Did I answer your question? Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree, obviously, that nature is all that exists. I mean, na nature is, exists, but then nature okay. is ex exists is different from nature is all that exists. Oh, I quite agree. Those, one is the premise, the other is the conclusion. I, I, th I think we've discriminated them. Thank you. Another... Another question from this line. Uh, this is a question regarding morality. Um, I think I disagree with both of you. I don't really believe in a morality, and I know that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> but, but hold on, hold on, hold on. In the sense that I don't necessarily think that judgments always necessarily follow. But uh, I think it was interesting that you said that whether or not you like something doesn't make it true or not true. Right. Uh, okay, so... Um, there's this great play by Bertolt Brecht called Galileo, and there's this great quote in it. They're talking about the adoption of the Copernican system uh, in place of the, uh, uh, the Earth-centric theory, the geocentric theory. Uh, and everybody's against it for all these reasons, because it disagreed with scripture. It displaced humanity from its special place at the center of the universe. And there's this great quote that says, you know, why would we want to strike a discord in this ineffable harmony? Your question. Uh, uh, so why is it, other than the fact that you don't like the, the, the conclusion or that you would prefer a different one, why does it necessarily follow that human, humans are special and that yeah. morality is therefore objective and that we're different from anything else? Yes. Okay, great question. Uh, I admire you at least for your consistency in, in what you say. I bet you can't live that way. I, I think when you interact with other people, you will treat them in ways that would not be consistent with saying that it's morally neutral whether you betray them 
or befriend them. Uh, I think it's impossible to live uh, as though other people do not have intrinsic moral value, unless you're psychopathic. But, and, and I'm not suggesting you are, of course. But, but to get to your question, I, I was careful in the way I framed my argument. My argument was to appeal to the sources of truth that the naturalist appeals to. Reason, science, and experience. Some of my arguments were based on reason. Others appeared to sci appealed to scientific fact. The moral argument is an appeal to our moral experience. And so it's not just a matter of liking the conclusion or not. I'm saying that naturalism is massively contrary to our moral experience. And I don't see any reason to think that our moral experience is delusory or illusory. Uh, I think that in our moral experience, we do apprehend moral oughts. We ought to do this or we ought not to do that. We apprehend a distinction between good and evil. And I see no reason to think that delusory. On the naturalist view, we ought to pay attention to our moral experience and take it seriously. And if we do, then I think we'll see that the moralist is wrong when he says that moral values are just relative to individual societies or whatever, that it's merely a set of recommendations for achieving certain goals or desires. And so if you agree with me on that, if you, if you uh, follow my uh, suggestion that moral experience does point in this direction, then you'll accept the second premise of the moral argument from which it will follow then deductively that God exists. All right. From this side. Um, thank you, both of you. It was great to listen to. Um, I think any Christian would believe that, or, or we'd have to come to the conclusion that uh, belief in God begs the question. It's a logical fallacy, um, if we were to argue logically. However, you mentioned that if there are no bridges that bridge the gap, there are no solid gaps or solid bridges from the natural to the supernatural, then uh, there is no reason to believe that the supernatural exists. However, that begs the question, and that is a logical fallacy. So, because you're saying the, what's begging the question is the existence of the supernatural. You're saying there's no reason to believe it exists. Well, why is there no reason? Do you have a question? My, my question is, isn't the more conservative answer then to say that you don't know? Which would be the more agnostic view? Because you, you, you appeal to conservatism. Okay, thanks. So, isn't the more conservative answer that we don't know? Admirably stated. Uh, we're back to terminology. Um, look, folks, uh, when the atheist says, I can't believe in the supernatural, there's reasons for this. The reasons are that the reasons for the existence of supernatural all in the atheist's uh, judgment fail to yield adequate support separately or collectively. Now, if uh, this atheist is pushed and said something like the following, look, uh, for all you know, Mr. Know-it-all atheist, the supernatural might still be waiting there out in the darkness. My reply is, okay, I'm a humble guy. For all I know, yeah. Uh, it's logically possible that there could be uh, something supernatural out there. 
It's logically possible that there's a flying spaghetti monster out there as well. If you were to ask my opinion uh, in a lighter moment, perhaps with a pint in me, what, uh, what kind of supernatural realm would best explain this crazy world we live in? I would say a committee of very angry gods. Uh, I've served on committees. They only botch the work. But uh, enough of this lifeheartedness. Um, the agnostic has positioned themselves somehow between the supernaturalist and the naturalist, it's a very difficult no man's land to occupy. On the one hand, the agnostic seems to very cleverly make themselves seem smarter than the atheist when the agnostic says, ah, I'm the hum more humble dude here in this fight. I'm telling you, I don't know whether or not the supernatural world exists or not. Now, the atheist can then reply to the agnostic, well, gee, uh, we agree on this. We don't know that it exists. And when we don't know and we don't even have the beginnings of adequate justification for believing it exists, we don't believe that it exists. That is the default position that the agnostic and the atheist Shares and the rest is, I think, more emotional force and rhetoric that allows the agnostic to think that they're somehow smarter or more humble than the atheist. I fail to see any big difference here. Okay, thanks. Uh, another question from this line here. Uh, yeah, my question is, um, well, religion advocates peace and unity. On the other hand, also, they, they, uh, they separate people into groups. And that separation into groups leads to war and conflict. So my question is just really simple. Is religion a good thing? Um, not necessarily. Uh, it depends on which religion you're talking about. I think there's some religions in the world that are truly horrid religions. Uh, voodoo, for example, would be one, I think, that most of us would agree is a very destructive and deleterious religion. Uh, and certainly there are lots of examples of other ancient religions that practice child sacrifice and other forms of uh, monstrous uh, ritual practices for their bloodthirsty deities. So I don't think that religion is necessarily a good thing. I'm very disturbed, for example, at fundamentalist Islam and its division of the world into the house of Islam or the house of submission and the house of war and that the house of war are those nations that have yet to be brought forcibly into the house of submission by force of arms and violence if necessary I, I agree with the ethic of Jesus of Nazareth that we should love our neighbors uh, that we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and despitefully use us uh, so I, I think it depends on which religion you're talking about and and the religion I believe is true is the religion taught and modeled by Jesus of Nazareth. And he was not a violent person, someone who would lead a jihad or, or something of that sort. And when people or Christians supposedly following in his name have done so, I think they've acted in profound inconsistency with what Jesus taught and modeled. 
So the answer to your question would be no, not necessarily. But but some religions, I think, are very, very beneficial. Thank you. A uh, question from this line. Okay, my question for you is, you said that there are three ways of deducing whether or not something works in the naturalist view, and they are reason, experience, and whatever the other one was. Science. Oh, okay, don't forget science, please. <laughs> the question I have to ask is, how come you disregard religious experience and our explanation for it that reason cannot explain it? How come you disregard religious experience as a valid view for the notion that God exists. So if you could just please clarify your position. Sure. Two main reasons, and I'll be brief because I seem to be covering territory that I've covered previously. The first main reason is because religious experiences are profoundly inconsistent with each other. And by uh, the rational principle that we ought to seek consistency, all of these inconsistent religious experiences People claiming that they experience this God, that God, the other God, hundreds of gods. How many gods have people claimed to actually have personally experienced or had messages from? Religion encyclopedias fill shelves full of these claims down through the centuries. They're all inconsistent with each other, save where people can manage to get together and form stable churches where they can all try to kind of get their story straight. And even then, it's an immense struggle. Uh, the history of Christianity is replete with churches splitting and denominations infighting over whether or not some charismatic leader accurately got a new message or revelation from Jesus correctly. We've witnessed, uh, for example, Mormonism split off from Christianity over the argument over new revelation. The atheist uh, can't handle all of this inconsistency. Again, uh, they all claim to be true. They can't all be true. It's impossible to figure out which one is true. The atheist takes the conservative position that, therefore, even though these experiences exist and are fascinating to scientifically study, they tell us nothing solid about the supernatural whatsoever. I have a couple more questions from the other rooms, which I'll briefly, briefly relate. They uh, both vote or to both debaters, they go to the question of morality. Um, so first to Dr. Craig, to summarize, this is sort of two questions mixed into one. Your, your, your argument, um, your moral argument for the existence of God sort of rests on the premise that human beings are special. Is that correct? So can, that objective and, and can, moral you values that, can you defend that present or that premise? Can I defend that premise? Yes. I would defend it by moral experience, that in moral experience we apprehend a realm of uh, right and wrong, good and evil, and that we have no grounds or reasons to deny or think that moral experience is delusory. It's similar to sense experience. In sense experience, I apprehend a world of physical objects outside of me. Now, I can't get outside of my sense experience in order to justify my sense experience. There's no way to refute via sense experience the person who says I'm a body lying in the matrix wired up with electrodes to believe that I'm here in Vancouver participating in this debate uh, with all these people in the audience when in fact none of this is real. You see, I can't validate my sense experience through some other 
for, uh, uh, sense because there isn't any way to get outside my sense experience. Rather, you take the deliverances of your sense experience as basic and veridical, that is to say reliable, unless and until you have some reason to think that they are delusory. Now, moral experience is exactly on the same plane. There isn't any way to get outside your moral experience to test whether or not there is this realm of objective moral values and duties out there. It is apprehended simply through moral experience. That's the way ethicists work. And so um, any argument that you give for moral skepticism, I can run a parallel argument as to why you should be skeptical about the existence of the external world and deny your sense experiences. I think in both cases, we accept the deliverances of our experiences as veridical unless and until we have some good reason to think that we're deluded. And on that basis, as I say, I think naturalism's claim that there are no absolute moral truths or moral obligations is just massively contrary to experience uh, and therefore, I, I believe that, for example, it is not a morally neutral act, a morally indifferent act to drive an airliner into an office building of innocent people, that, that there's a moral difference between doing that and putting it down on the runway safely. There's, there's a moral difference in those actions. And if you agree with that, then I think you, you will agree that God must exist. And the corresponding question to Dr. Shook, and before I ask this, I'm really sorry to the people standing in line, but uh, this, is, this will be the last question. I'm really sorry, guys. Um, perhaps there will be time to come up and talk to them afterward. I'm not sure. Um, but no, I'm, I'm really sorry. This is the last question. So the corresponding question to you is if this sort of moral experience uh, does not come from a god or a, a supernatural cause, where does it come from? Well, moral experience is... Very important. I'm glad this has come up. What is the best explanation of our moral experience? Well, if your moral experience is anything like my moral experience, it's a confusing experience. We all have in us a wide variety of rules and values that we're all somehow supposed to simultaneously be following. It's hard sometimes to know what is the right thing to do. In fact, ordinary human moral experience is quite a jumble. We're repeatedly put into tough dilemmas and we can't really tell, uh, you know, what exactly is the right thing to do. Dr. Craig says we can't get out of our moral experience. That's simply false. We can compare it with somebody else. That's how we obtain an objective perspective on reality by cumulatively adding up individuals, reliable perspectives on that reality and making a coherent picture. Likewise, civilized people try to do this with morality, elevating us from subjectivity into what I've called objectivity. You can't get to absolutes, but you can get to objectivity if sincere people share their moral experiences and honestly try to together figure out the best perspective. Human beings have been doing this for millennia. Sincere effort has resulted in a wide variety of very important objective moral truths which this humanist is perfectly happy to commit to and is committed to. What's the best explanation for our complex, confused, hard-to-achieve 
moral experience. It's not a transcendent, lone God who knows all the morality and somehow can put it into each of your hearts. On that hypothesis, we'd expect our moral intuitions to remain consistently the same over time, never agree with each other unless somebody's really damaged or delusional. Morality would be easy. Folks, morality is hard. Modern-day civilized democratic citizens know that, but they still Trust it. This is the path of progress, not putting your faith in mysteries and revelations and ancient scriptures that end up giving you nothing but more noise and adding to the confusion. So that's in conclusion. My pleasure. Thank you.